So this is the uh, ancient tradition of the Uposata. The point of a tradition is it it transcends uh, time and space. So you know, we reset ourselves, our own mind, space and inclinations and perceptions and attitudes in something transcultural and transpersonal and transtemporal, which is the point of a tradition really. There's a sense of, you know, going to a very large larger space, referring to a much larger consciousness space. This is a collective consciousness of the Buddhist Dhamma practice world, so which in which there are many many great beings who have arisen in that field, that consciousness field. And uh, so it's kind of just seeing our own thought patterns, which can seem so mesmerizing, our self-definition seems so convincing. And actually, you know, it's just the crest of the surface, isn't it? Underneath is this kind of urge towards freedom, this uh, heart that wells up, towards kindness and compassion and tunes itself to non-abusive behavior and, and looks towards purity and awakening. And that's, uh, you know, really wonderful to tune into. And sometimes it really helps when you get the sense of the larger field because you kind of get your own little bit in perspective. <laughs> you know, it's not... <laughs> Not that really that big a deal, but it it, it gets to that big when we kind of st- stuck in your face. You know, it looks big. <laughs> it's the fleck of the fleck of dust in the eye that you can. It feels like you've got a whole sandcastle in there, because <laughs> it hurts. But there's a much bigger thing that we're connected to. So posita, I think it means something literally like drawing near. So it was it was always set up in who knows when, but certainly before the Buddha time, because it was an ongoing tradition then. It was associated with the the full moons and new moons and these particular powerful um, periods in the lunar cycle. This kind of thing that people could witness. You know, this moon is doing something up there. You know, we should tune into this, whatever's going on up there. It's obviously doing something, <laughs> getting big and bright and then fading away. So they felt the times of the full moon and the new moon were when whatever cosmic powers or divinities or whatever was around was going to be more fully present. You know? So this is a time we should also, you know, raise our game, as it were, to to um, lift up to to something more than just our household duties, you know, tune into something more cosmic. So that's the origin of it. And, um, but nobody knows really when that began, but the Buddha said, well, this, this, since there is this thing happening, why don't you, you, you Sangha, why don't you monks and nuns, why don't you use this occasion to just sit up all night and talk on Dhamma? And also it's a time when you should be giving instructions to people. Because this is when everybody's going to be ready, you know, primed for something more transcendent. So in that sort of, in that state of mind, attitude, this is when you should really start to put in the the teachings. 
don't just sit there, you know. He said rather, typically the, the Buddha, he said it quite strikingly, don't sit like dumb hogs. This is the time you should actually be opening your mouth and saying something. Because <laughs> uh, obviously the Buddha was very keen that the you know the the people in the world everybody should know about this teaching. So that was the origin of it. And then people would take the precepts on that day. The eight precepts would be again pretty ancient custom. I think it's I think it's pre-Buddhist. And that might be just for that one day. That one day they would say, okay, let's really pull the stuff down and focus on this. And that's been going on ever since. Well, who knows when it began, but certainly it's recorded in the Buddhist scriptures from whenever that was, 500 BC. You know, <laughs> that's a long time. And people have been doing it every two weeks ever since, which is pretty incredible. So it's still going on, and in, in uh, Sri Lanka, you know, they call the Poya Day, which is the Puja or Posita, all those words are associated. That's every two weeks. In Thailand, you have that same thing. They, even they had another, they thought, well, two weeks, let's have also one on the, in between those two, so they have four. But the real Positas are the, the fall of the new moons. And then still in the, Monasteries, people will come on those days and meditate and make offerings and sit up, listen to talks, and some stay through the night meditating. And it's pretty amazing to see if you're in a forest monastery out in Thailand and the, you know, lay all the villagers turn up, offer dana, tidy up, do a meditation. Ask for the Dhamma talk, ask for the precepts, listen to a talk, and they sit there all night <laughs> till three or four in the morning and then get up and take leave and then go off to go off to work. <laughs> Do what they're doing, you know, with the cooking or whatever. So it's uh there's something about, you know, people lift to a particular communal communal space, communal space and it's you know, it's got a tremendous strengthening effect. And some sit, some walk, some sit a long time, walk a bit, some people just sit there. And uh, it's the encouragement is just to use it to tune in and, and do a gear shift, you know, reset and review and consider, think things through what you, you know, so it's really like a, a reset for the, for, for the week or the fortnight. And it's something that uh, acts as a tremendous uh, kind of mooring post, a stabilizer in the field of events, which could be anybody's field can be full of, you know, work and death and urgent appointments and things happening and things to get concerned about, things to feel happy about and so on. Meanwhile, this is underneath it. That sort of keeps framing it up in the right way. So we're encouraged and uh, to uh, make use of this occasion. It's, uh, and it's often the sense of just really giving oneself to uh, 
to uh, to practice. So let's have some time for meditation, and then uh, if there's interest, I'll give a talk. This is the uh, traditional request, and it's the words that are attributed to the Brahma deity when he first asked the Buddha to give the teachings. It uh, says there are beings here with a little dust in their eyes. Play, pray, please teach the Dhamma out of empathy or anukampa. So that's the that's the translation of it. Out of compassion or out of anokampa, which means a kind of recognition of the huge field of cause and effect that we tuned into and the resonances and the we're all kind of plugged into that feeling and a very natural uh, experience of feeling compassion and concern. Uh, joy, appreciation, gratitude, these resonances which are quite normal for people. Uh, when they become stronger, more apparent, less you know, preoccupied and closed down we are, and then those, those, that awareness by itself naturally opens up. And it's very important to, to just recognize a lot of, with a lot of the teaching on ceasing and finishing and breaking up and all that. We're really talking about breaking up the obstacles to the to the great heart. <laughs> but you see, you can't, but what, see, this is what you need to do because you can't create, you don't have to create enlightenment or vast awareness because it's just to stop shutting it down. <laughs> so it's, it's quite a pragmatic rather than uh, Metaphysical teaching doesn't say why it's there. This is just what we have. It's what's around, you know. But it gets 
kind of close down this little struggling, constricted thing. Yeah. It needs to be released. <coughs> so, oh, this evening I'd touch into a few points in the scriptures to continue this uh, reflection around the foods. <coughs> so tonight, particularly consciousness. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhaṁ dhammaṁ saṅgaṁ namasāmi Just, uh, you know, again, we're looking at translations of translations. Buddha has an experience and then uses the language of the time to try to bring that across the people of that time. And then uh, over a few thousand years later, people in the current age take those words from the ancient texts and try to translate them into English words. So you've got two sets of translations there. And... Uh, my sense over years of study and practice is that the translators have, have done as good as they can do with the language, but there are just certain problems with the languages or where they don't add up. And here, consciousness is one of them. <laughs> because uh, <clears throat> time and time again, what one sees consciousness being referred to in the scriptures is... Uh, um, so it's always bound up with um, forming an object so it's bound up with a sight or a sound or a touch or a thought and um, it, it's always bound up with it's called a, when there's a sense base a sense object and consciousness you know and it's dependent upon this matrix of the the uh, a form, and what's called nama, or naming, which is the activities of perception and interpretation and the particular, you know, object. Yeah, so it's that active seeing thing. And even thinking something, you know, something's brought up into the mind, an idea, and then we flash on that and things start happening. And that's what's meant by vijnana. Jnana is a kind of knowing, and vi is a suffix, prefix meaning something like uh, separative. So it always discriminates, discriminative knowing, you might say. And it generates the sense of a subject and object. Now, we often, in terms of our practice, we tap into something else. And uh, so often call it awareness. Uh, and there's a suggestion in the, the suttas where Sariputta and Mahakotita, I believe, are talking. And uh, Mahakotita says, well, what's the difference between wisdom and consciousness? 
Are they the same or are they separate? Are they conjoined or disjoined? And Sariputta says, well, in some respects they're the same or they're conjoined, in some sense they're, di- they're disjoined. So they're, they're conjoined in the fact that wherever there's consciousness, there's wisdom. So there you are, you've already got it. It's great, huh? Wherever there's consciousness, there's wisdom. And we tend to think maybe of wisdom as being some brilliant intellect. What it means is wherever, wherever you're conscious, you know you're conscious. You're aware of being conscious. And you can discern, I am conscious of a sight. I see this sight, and now I know I'm seeing a sight. Yeah. So there's this, right? So that, what we often call awareness, wisdom in the sutta, says, well, they happen at the same time. You see a sight, and with no, you know, when you do a little bit of reflection, you know, yeah, I'm seeing that sight. That's what it's doing to me. We can contemplate consciousness. So wisdom and consciousness are not separate. And it's, well, he says, in what way are they? So are they disjoined? He says, well, you, you have to do two different things with them. Um, wisdom is to be developed. You cultivate wisdom. You cultivate that quality of knowing and consciousness has to be understood yeah so you, you use your knowing to understand consciousness so you become more aware of consciousness fully aware of consciousness where it's what it sets up what its what its uh, activities are uh, it's making something present for us um, we recognize it's moving a lot, changing, it's bringing objects in, it's affecting us, it's bringing contact impressions, and um, we, we understand all this, and we also understand all that it brings in, all that is touched, all that is seen, cognized, tasted. This is changing, impermanent, does not last, Mm. Holding on to it causes stress and suffering. And even further than that, one realizes this whole process is not done by some person. It's a set of reflex activities. It's not self. Consciousness is not self. It's um, a function, an activity, not, not a self, not a person. And uh, it says, again, a very very brief teaching the Buddha gave to one of his uh, errant disciples was, uh, you know, you should train in this way, develop reflection on the unattractiveness of the body to combat sexual desire, develop or even fondness of your own body, fascination with it, Develop loving kindness to combat um, ill will. Develop mindfulness of breathing to cut off distracting thoughts. Develop the perception of impermanence. Because when one really thoroughly, thoroughly develops impermanence, we realize not self. And the realization of not self, this is Nibbana here and now. 
So, you know, something being presented there in very brief points, isn't it? This is how important the perception of impermanence is. You keep almost bringing that message back to consciousness. Consciousness has to know that and start to change its ways from the grab to how's that? You know, it steps back, it's restrained. We don't buy any old thing that's coming along. We, we note it, we notice sight. And we notice the message that gets inducted in sights and sounds and touches and thoughts. And the message is, you could have this. Or you're stuck with this. Yeah. You're stuck with this feeling. You're stuck with this thought. Or you could have that thought. You could have that idea. You could have that thing that your mind's conceiving of. And it's not true. <laughs> and if you take one piece, you're going to say, yeah, no, no, I didn't get it, did I? It, it felt like something happened. I was moved. I was stirred. I was excited. I didn't get anything other than another movement happening, which then sort of puttered out. <laughs> so then, in that thing, I thought, well, I better have another one. <laughs> get it going again. So we're really not, we're kind of bemused, mesmerized by this movement. This is experience something seems to be had and got but it's really just the resonances and energies and movements happening that have no substance and no lasting fulfillment but there's a, the quality of the, the the holding of that generates a particular form psychological form called myself. And we can be aware of ourself. You know, there's no there's kind of some statement about you personally, that you and you, you're all stuck there grasping and craving and clinging, because we can witness the grasping. Sometimes it's a bit humbling. But, <laughs> but you know, once you've got over that, <laughs> of ego deflation yeah right there it is and then you can look look at that there it did it again you know wow busy isn't it and there it's looking for something else now and it grabs that and look it's suffering again there it goes again you know so you begin to sense that this is dispassion recognizing the process and then perhaps we begin to see somewhere in there there's a trigger that you could unplug, that would stop this whole process going on. And you'd feel a lot better for it. Yeah. And it's really, you know, it's described in various ways, but the bottom line of it is called avijja, ignorance. Uh, not seeing, not noticing. And then what's based on that, tanha, thirst. Mm. Is that reaching out for something because one's thirsty, one's hungry, so you want something to fill up that unfulfilled experience. Mm. So, because of this, 
this instinct and the experience of feeling thirsty, of feeling hungry, of feeling ungratified. I think, well, okay, stuff's impermanent, but you get a little bit out of it, you know. You get a bit of a joyride before the car crashes. So, you know, it's better than nothing, isn't it? And if you're going to stop that altogether as well, oh my goodness, you're stuck in some kind of deep freeze for eternity. Is that really where we want to be? Because what Avijja also doesn't allow us to see is that, no, actually, if you were really careful and wise and thorough and balanced your attention, you'd be able to experience something deeply fulfilling, subtle, but deeply fulfilling in that in that experience of letting go it would be accompanied by happiness and joy Mm. now although we you know I think it's not that difficult to understand this conceptually but we're dealing with reflexes here that uh, you know catch catch hold and operate Mm. so one does need a, a kind of a program, like a 12-step program, maybe a 8-step program, <laughs> and really thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly doing it. So I think you know, there's been a lot of you know, questions and half-questions, and what's this all about striving and effort, and how's that? It feels kind of, you know, why do you do that? Is that, is that right? Or what's the meaning of that? Well, yes, there is that, but it's... Uh, I would say it's not striving onwards, it's just really being very thorough. Putting your energy into being really very thorough. And often taking in deeply and lingering and fleshing out and thoroughly fulfilling things that you, you get the hang of basically quite quickly. But the tendency is to kind of move on. You know, oh yeah, impermanent, watch a thought come and go, right, I've got impermanence down. No, it's a bit more than that. Because, <laughs> you know, you can watch thoughts coming and going, it doesn't, so. <laughs> it gives you some space, but you don't really feel fulfilled by that experience. But then really turning, you know, more fully in, into the felt experience of what it is that can sense that. Where's the awareness, the wisdom, faculty that is experiencing that can that also be known can that be sensed can that be dwelt in can that be enjoyed and uh, as I've been suggesting enjoyment is a big part of the practice not a small thing not just the sweetie to you know help the medicine go down because it's not so much just the thing you enjoy, it's the quality of the mind widening, taking in fully, sampling, tasting, drinking in, steeping itself in. So every bit of your body, mind, is really getting it. You know, a simple thing like impermanence or kindness or breathing. Everything is breathing. You know, the roots of your hair are breathing. <laughs> you really get it thorough. The more thorough, that's that's the point. It's not about going onwards. It's about thoroughly 
deepening into uh, experiences. And this may be where the conundrum around effort and striving comes, because uh, ten, people tend to, I guess, think of striving very much as a kind of onwards thing. And, you know, to get to the next bit. And really, you know, there's only really, you know, basics. There's basics and footnotes. There's no, you know, it's not, there's only one chapter in the book, really. It's not like, there's a few footnotes. And any one, any one piece of that, if you take it and really get into it and sample it, then you, you can thoroughly enrich because it's really not, not about, it's about this natural property of wisdom that has to be developed, being more and more, we say wisdom is not an intellectual quality, it's a deep, deeply appreciative sense that we have. Now, if you, you know, you can develop intellectual wisdom in which you can have huge understanding about the nature of one microbe, you know, or a Higgs boson particle or something, you know. So it has that ability to, to expand uh, what was at first could be just put down as one term. But then if we take that beyond the intellect into the, what I'm calling the heart sense, then the expanding of one's appreciation and perception and integration into something is, is uh, boundless, actually, till there are no boundaries left. This is the fulfillment. And that's a fulfillment accompanied by happiness and joy, and joy of release. So wisdom is not an intellectual experience. It's, it can be deeply pleasurable. It can be the sense of coming home, you know, the sense of uh, handling your heart wisely, handling your what arises thoroughly, completely, and there's a sense of relief and fulfillment in that. And in this then, because of this, consciousness does not run out. Now, because <coughs> the two are conjoined. So I'm calling this quality of wisdom, awareness, there are a range of terms that are used, but they all have a similar sound of panya, wisdom, sampajanya, thorough awareness, pajanati, fully understanding, anya, realization. They all hover around these nya sounds, jnana. Um, so there are different you know, ways you can explore or, or talk about that. But essentially it has this same root experience, we are called the interior consciousness but just because you know consciousness when it runs out does seem to present us with something out there you know it's out there isn't it and then for the interior it's not out there it's 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 here the hereness as, as an unfolding experience so i for one of just to give a graphic example i say in the inwards interiors and exteriors and consciousness is really the exterior facing aspect 
And when consciousness is called niroda or ceasing, then again, if you look at the word, it's a, the prefix ni means not, roda running, not running out. So the not running out of consciousness is what we're looking for, not kind of some stupefaction. So when you get it down to ceasing of consciousness, you know, wow, some kind of coma or, you know, asphyxiation or strangling. No, it just means the consciousness is not running out. (laughs) And then, oh yeah, oh yeah, I got it. Because yes, that's what it does, doesn't it? It runs out into future, it runs out into past, it runs out into sights and sounds and thoughts and impressions, what I should do and who I am, it's running out all the time. And then the Niroda, consciousness not running out. I think this helps to give us as practitioners, uh, you know, uh, it's taken a little while to explain it, hasn't it? But to, to, I think it's worthwhile to really handle some of what these words are referring to. Because that make, it makes sense to me. You know, the Arahant is not unconscious. <laughs> the Buddha is not. <laughs> In our sense of the word, his consciousness is not running out, but he's not unaware, <laughs> oblivious. <laughs> Very much the opposite, it seems. Extremely tuned in and empathic. So consciousness is something then we restrain. That's the, that's the, in the discourse on the foods, is consciousness is to be understood. And a practice is restraining consciousness, restraining the running out, limiting it to sights and sounds, what we look at, uh, how much we go with it, we just note seeing something I enjoy, I don't enjoy, we stop the running there. You know, the running out there. How does it feel? How does it feel? We got to investigate wisely. How does it feel to be touched by that? How does it feel to be running out to that? How does it feel to be stirred by that? How's that? We contemplate it wisely. Uh, and that's, that's innate for us. And we're encouraged to do that, whatever is happening. restraint and relinquishment of the act- relinquishment is really around these activities the sankara as we said earlier you know this is peaceful this is sublime the allaying of all the of all sankaras the relinquishment of all attachment the ending of craving dispassion nibbana so relinquishment is really about this activity of running out and what is it activates consciousness? Sankara is the activator. So you look at dependent origination, you have ignorance, conditions, the sankara, sankaras can get consciousness running out. Sankaras condition the running out. You know, the activities the f- and the programs cause that run out. Yes. And then with the stilling of sankaras, consciousness don't run out. So a little text here in the <coughs> connected discourses. This one's in the 
I'll just put these down for you so people who'd like to look at these and think about them in their own time. This one's in the Book of Causation, the Nidana Vaga, 39th. Actually, there are three very similar. Hmm? I have enough light, Jim. Trying to see which one because they're all pretty similar. Best. Okay, I'll read the 40th actually, it's a sh- shorter one. Because what one intends and what one plans, and whatever one has a tendency towards, this becomes a basis for the maintenance of consciousness. When there is a basis, there is a support for the establishing of consciousness. When consciousness is established and has come to growth, there is inclination. When there is inclination, there is coming and going. When there is coming and going, there is passing away and being reborn. When there is passing away and being reborn, future birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure and despair come to be, such as the origin of this whole mass of suffering. Because if one does not intend, one does not plan, one still has a tendency towards something, this becomes a basis for the maintenance of consciousness. When there is a basis, there is a support for the establishing of consciousness, such as the origin of this whole mass of suffering. But because when one does not intend, one does not plan, and one does not have a tendency towards anything, No basis exists for the maintenance of consciousness. When there is no basis, there is no support for the establishing of consciousness. When consciousness is unestablished and does not come to growth, there is no inclination. When there is no inclination, there is no coming and going. There is no coming and going, there is no passing away and being reborn. There is no passing away and being reborn, future birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair cease, such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. Mm -hmm. So, you can see there's the kind of, the role of Sankara, because the intending, planning, inclining, this is all Sankara. This is all the volitional tendency. And I think they refer to perhaps different, levels of it. So intending is more conscious volition, inclination is more, you know, uh, subconscious tendencies, what are called the, the tendencies and utsaya. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, uh, a fundamental, you know, we have, we make, we, some of the times we almost find ourselves deliberately inclining towards or deliberately feeling, you know, a, a flaring up of ill will. You know, or flaring up of craving around a particular thing, or planning and around a particular thing, and that that can come and go, but the inclination, the underlying inclination, still remains, and then takes takes another 
thing to crave or have ill will towards. So the, these are all motivating tendencies. These are, this is all in the citta sankara, the heart, the sankaras associated with the heart mind. Mm. Tendencies, plans, inclinations, uh, and then the resting of that when that rests. Consciousness is not established. Mm. It's called there is um, in when he goes into a little more fully in a previous discourse, quite similar. He says, when consciousness is established, has come to growth, there is the descent of name and form. With name and form as condition, the six sense bases come to be with the six sense bases as condition contact, contact as condition feeling, craving, clinging, existence, birth, and so forth. So, yeah, and it sounds like it's talking about one lifetime, you know. So you can expand it to that sense, but it also refers to something more momentary, the arising of the senses. So, you know, the eyes closed and then volition to open them, sense contact arises. You know? So we notice that. And some of these sense bases are just functional, but the one that arises more or less any old time of day or night, whether we want you to or not, is the mind consciousness. And that's the one that most primarily, you know, you need to learn how to sort of unplug it. <laughs> so it's not just flaring up day and night out of control, causing you pain. <laughs> and so why is this? Because of name and form flares up. Again, it sounds like, you know, but then you're kind of really starting to home in on, on particular points in, in, in one's experience. So we've come down to, well, it's really the problem is Sankara. You don't, you're not, talk, not asked to destroy consciousness or become unconscious, but consciousness is not getting established. And what is it establishes consciousness? What is it doing the running out? What's the propellant for that? It's Sankara. Activations, programs, formative tendencies, the volitional push. And of all Sankaras, it's the mind Sankara. So we've really narrowed it down to one particular point that we can all witness and we're encouraged to witness. You know, the activation, the flaring, the pushing, the dragging back the spinning round and say, yeah, this is something that is happening like all the time and uh, you can moderate it, you could make it go in more agreeable directions, you could calm it, you could actually switch it off, which is, you know, the awesome Possibility. Mm. The name, so 
consciousness established on name and form with the descent of name and form. So name and form, form rupa, and consciousness vijnana, and the other aggregates, perception, feeling, and sankara, are then bound up in name. Name is the collection of perception, feeling, and sankara. And sankara is divided up into its particular three ways in which it acts. Three ways in which the mental volition, the mental sankara acts, how it gets going. Hmm. So we have this kind of energy that activates things. How does it do it? It does it through three particular interwoven uh, activities. One is called contact. It means something hits us and the mind starts designating what it is, resonating with it, creating an interior map, an interior image, an interior movement about what has been contacted. And from this perception arises. That's contact's job. Contact must be said means much more than just the physical touch. It means what happens when you make that touch. Quality of smooth, agreeable, disagreeable. What happens when you hear the sound? What happens when you hear the word? Yeah. What it does to you? Contact impressions. And we've begun to perhaps recognize a lot of those contact impressions are not that accurate. They are, we hear what our hearts have got used to hearing or imagine is being said. We imagine hostility. We imagine desirability. We imagine something we could have. We imagine something that we could get away from. We imagine something and we look around and we've got trying to, oh, there's something desirable. Oh, there's something that's bothering me. And, and it's happening, isn't it? You know, that's contact. It's uh, translating things into desirables and fearables and worryables and so on. And it's not always that accurate. I mean, there's a certain accuracy to it. But how much is our own tendencies towards anxiety, fearfulness? How much of it's because of the karma? Tendencies have been established to feel nervous or to feel needy or to feel something or the other, to interpret things in that way. Contact is extremely subjective. But it's an activity that's happening. Is it possible with contact to just pause around that which, as it enters us, makes us feel disturbed or excited or flattened or thrown out? Pause, soften, widen, take that in, really calm it and then begin to look at that 
Is that actually true? Where do you get that message from? And what's the appropriate response? So we're not saying dismiss it, just saying don't run out on it. Dispassion, contemplate, contact. So you begin to work on that sankara. But it's backed up by the other two ways in which she operates. One is attention. Something Something in our mind frames up things. Frames up things. And it generally frames up things, experiences, in terms of familiarity. When you first come somewhere, you're kind of like, let me get this, what's this about? Where am I? What's happening? Wow, look at that. What's the deal here? You know, look around. Attention hasn't got it yet. And he says, "All right, there's the hall. There's the bathroom. There's the kitchen. It's seven o'clock. There's food, breakfast. Right? This is this, this guy's going to give the talk. Okay, got it. Boom, and it starts to become familiar, and you've got it framed. You know, <laughs> and then that's why you know how to operate within that particular framed piece. Get there on time. Do this, that, and the other. Get the head of the queue. Get the, you know, the, get the." goodies in before the other people turn up or get, you know whatever it is the little sneaky things get in there and then <laughs> but overall you get a sense of familiarity and familiarity isn't always such a good thing because as the saying familiarity breeds contempt or at least breeds inattention we get kind of we glide we coast on our familiars and we lose the, the sharpness and the alertness and the flexibility and the edginess of it all. Attention does that. It just keeps framing things. And it frames things up in terms of uh, me. And why it's, you know, we kind of like that, don't we? You know, something new, new people, uncertain things. We really want to get that known quickly. So I know where I am. And in this uh, practice, you say, you know, just, you want to go against that. Keep not knowing where you are. Keep treating it like a new day, first moment, first breath you've ever breathed. How fresh that would be. Don't be in a hurry to become somebody. We work on attention. Why can you widen your attention? Look at the things you don't see. Even our our framing up our body, how we're so used to framing our, our bodies in terms of what we see with our eyes. You know, how true is that? And you feel it here. No, it doesn't feel like that at all. Hands are big, thumb is at least as big as my head when I feel it. <laughs> the whopping great thing, as a felt sense, a big thumb, big lips. Yeah. <laughs> Tickle in the food's getting closer and those lips get huge and then, yeah, not much <laughs> that's what it feels like it's changing all the time 
And when something grabbable comes up, my hands get really big. When something comes towards my mouth, my lips become huge. Other times they disappear. What's all this then? You know. And then well, the back of the head does. I haven't got a back to the head. There's no back to it. Big face with all sorts of stuff. But there's no no back of the head. Not much leg. Foot now and then. <laughs> no sides to the body. The diaphragm. That's about it. You know, wow, that's what we're really living with, and then notice how it changes. You know, how bits of it flare up and expand, generally upon, uh, based upon contact, desirability, fear, defensiveness, whatever. And then you say, well, let's get a hold of this thing instead of just letting it be thrown around by, by random inclinations. Try to really cultivate and get a full body that's stable or more stable at least you know complete and uh, calming and pleasing that you've got some handle on frame up your body use your breathing to frame it up and get your your breath body to expand till you really feel I don't know what shape it is but it feels sort of uh, it feels even Unconstricted, balanced, warm. Couldn't tell you about hair, teeth, nails. But I can sense so just a sense of an embodiment that is agreeable. That will do me. The other one was always a problem. And there's a bit of a imagination actually. The visual body is an imagined thing. And notice how much, you know, Sankara go into that in the world in general. You can do your hair, you know, your skin, tanning it, grooming it, waxing it, dyeing it purple, sniffing bits off, sticking bits on. (laughs) 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 It's a whole industry, isn't it? Just around, around. Something that you never get the benefit of because you're living inside it. <laughs> it's for other people's welfare, but I mean, if at all, you know, if you're living inside the thing, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> so you begin to really understand Rupa and how you frame it up. They work in on Sankara, really, attention. And how you can lengthen attention over a complete span of a breath, and you can detox it from these crazy programs. And so you just you know, train your attention to be something that will sustain, be steady, uh, frame up something useful, calming, enjoyable, intimate, yours, you know. If anything's going to be yours, it's going to be in here. Most well, a stable thing you have, breathing in, breathing out. Do it just as good through a lifetime, whatever your hair, whatever colour your hair is. <laughs> 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 
But of course, the other one is uh, that you could say he seems to be the boss of all of them. Most apparent is intention, the volitional tendency. Uh, sankara. So volitional tendency is the, the push, the urge, the drive, the inclination, the do it, the go there, the resist it, the push away. You know, it's the act, the real, really active one. And say, well, you know, these three, this the way this operates has also to be carefully understood and carefully trained. So it's like training a wild horse, you know, get, or like the elephant, you know, first they'll befriend it and then give it something benevolent to feed upon, calm it down, and then as it calms down, you can, you can make it, you can apply it. And you fortified it, fed it, trained it, calmed it, then you can apply its, its power. And it has enormous power, doesn't it? Volition. It sent people to the moon on that one, literally, didn't it? Where does a will as a way? And now we're using the power of volition to say, just stay here. You know? And it's not, and deepen and explore and be with this and calm down, take it steady. So these are the sankhara, the way they operate in the mind. And the Buddha is saying, it's right in here that we see name, form, and consciousness resting on that. Mm. Uh, mm. There's another sutta in the um, Sangyutta. The kindred set, the connected discourse. This is in the first book, the Dev, Devata Samyutta, the book with verses. Twenty-third. A tangle inside, a tangle outside. This generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you this, O Gotama, who can disentangle this tangle? This is a Devata. He's asking the Buddha. Man established on virtue, wise, developing the mind and wisdom. Bhikkhu, ardent, discreet, he can disentangle this tangle. Those for whom lust and hatred, along with ignorance, have been expunged. The arahant with taints destroyed, from them the tangle is disentangled. When name and form ceases, stops without remainder. And also impingement and perception of form, it's here, this tangle is cut. Um... And also, <clears throat> you see the, the power of this, what's called name, because of this, these Sankaras are embedded in that. Where do the streams turn back? This is the streaming out. 
Where did the round no longer evolve? Where does name and form cease, stop without remainder? Where water, air, earth, where water, earth, fire and air do not gain a footing, it's from here the streams turn back. Here the round no longer revolves. Here name and form ceases, stops without remainder. So this is the uh, expression used several times in the suit of the stopping of name and form. And really form is not going to stop because form, rupa, but these, what's the activity in this is the, in the naming, in contact, attention, intention. That's what has to stop, cease, relax, rest, take a break. <laughs> and then something rather wonderful happens in the, uh, in the Kevada Sutta, in the, the Buddha, is where asking the other day, the, the bhikkhu asking the great Brahma, where to earth, fire and water, um, um, stop and and the Buddha says no you shouldn't and the great Brahma doesn't know and he says you've got to ask the Buddha and the Buddha says well it's not quite the right question it's not where where do they stop it's just where do they not arise and he says where consciousness is signless um, non-manifestative and shine radiant or forever radiant this is where name and form break up and where the four elements do not gain a footing. Where consciousness is signless, uh, non-manifestative, doesn't form anything, or invisible, trackless, forever radiant, or radiating in all directions. This is where name and form break up. So it's an indication there is a kind of consciousness, a stopped consciousness, which is signless and non-manifestative, anidasanam, trackless, non-visible. What it means is nothing is manifested in that. It doesn't produce an object. It doesn't produce a sign. Signs are perceptions. Signs are forms. Signs are... Memories, signs, are moods, anything that can be experienced in this sense is a sign. So the non-manifesting consciousness is where the naming stops. And that's completely reasonable, isn't it? You know, when that activity of familiarizing, allocating, going for, framing things up, takes a rest, doesn't operate, well, you know, <laughs> there's nothing to be tracked and instead the energy of all that running out is then released into a, a latency or a, that is felt or somehow experienced, enjoyed, appreciated, but doesn't have any form to it, doesn't create a form, doesn't generate anything. So it's just that abiding in that quality. So these are interesting pointers to this, uh, what's meant by, you know, the nutriment of consciousness and the training of the, the understanding of consciousness and the understanding what triggers consciousness and understanding role of sankhara in that and begin to understand the practice with that. You know, and it's uh, 
Once it's really, we look into those impressions, contact impressions, how we frame things up, we widen, soften, don't follow it, contemplate the feeling of it, the experience of it, slowing down, yeah, calming it, laying it, see through the underlying belief, which is the something to be had, something to be got, something to be abolished, something to be sorted out, something that can be fixed, something I've got to do, something I can't do, all those assumptions, you know. And the assumptions say, well, if you follow this one, you know, you'll be all right. <laughs> you follow this one, it's all going to work for you. And, and you follow them, and things are, yeah, it's kind of. But, no. <laughs> and Garakanyanika gave me some chocolate today, and it had on the label, this will give you a moment of, what was it? Moment of timeless pleasure. <laughs> I thought, okay, I'll go for this. <laughs> it was a moment, it was quite nice, sort of sweet. Um, yeah, yeah, sweet, smooth. I wouldn't really call it timeless pleasure myself. <laughs> and I, I didn't really believe it would be. Why are we so hungry? Because we haven't really touched into the quality of that uh, radiant, trackless consciousness. Mm. Mm. So we have to start, and it's signless, is the first beginning. And signlessness is developed through impermanence. So you work on cultivating signlessness. And the, the thorough Cultivation of signlessness is through impermanence, through anicca. Means things because they're this and then they're that, and then they're this and then they're that. They're neither this nor that, because they're always in process. Everything is process. Hmm? And any time you halt the process, you can say, "Oh, it's bad." And you hold. But then you're at bad changes to this and to that, to this and to that. And you say, oh, it's good. Is it good? And the way it goes, timeless pleasure lasted for about <laughs> point <laughs> ten of a second. <laughs> and it was okay, and then it was past, you know. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it neither good nor bad, nor indifferent? It's just that. Yeah. You realize everything we kind of say something is, is a sort of fixation on one particular aspect, rather than seeing flow, process. Process in space and time. Anything we think we are is just a freezing around one particular perception. And not, and these, how locked these get. So perceptual impermanence is to be cultivated, but often 
It has to be backed up because things lock. You know, so they seem to be permanent because they get this stuck state. So this is where the body work, breathing, calming, releasing, releasing the locks so things can flow. Mm-hmm. The cultivation of impermanence begins to what is a body? You know, as you come into the breathing, then it begins, you unlock. And this is one of our primary tangible experiences as you begin to unlock in the body, then the experience of the body changes. It's no longer that kind of uncomfortable, edgy thing, you know, with pain in the back and this, that, and the other. It becomes something really quite indescribable, apart from kind of luminous and spacious and so on. So we begin to unlock that. And uh, really knowing how to look at or pay a thorough attention to one aspect. Body is different from feeling. Work on body, experience the sense of a complete form, flowiness of a form. Then you're going to start to contemplate feeling, breathing through feeling. But if you contemplate form and you work on form, then what you're going to find with that is your mind begins to be absorbed in that. It's not getting stuck with the feeling. The feeling doesn't get there. So you have a way with calming meditation to, to, you know, to get out of the way of feeling. <laughs> Calm it and... Uh, and basically, you know, get out of the way. This is the what you know restraints about, really. And we restrain the eyes. You don't have to be hit by things. You collect the body. You don't have to be hit with these all these physical feelings, because the innately, the presence of body is just this. This quality of breathing in, breathing out, and you 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 sustain your attention on that, and then you, the feeling doesn't get in there. Now, this is possible, or at least you can work on it. Not reacting to feeling. Yeah, not you know freezing up with feeling, but breathing through. Breathing through, so you find that then things start to soften, loosen up, and who you experience yourself as being changes also. Your emotional patterns change, and all this is such a, a, a beautiful effect that your mind will tend to abide in the quality of your freedom and your purity and your happiness, and it will abide in that, and so. By staying in that and abiding in that deeply, then afflictive feelings find less room to get in. This is our advice, and you really support the perception of impermanence through through the quality of calming and stabilizing the mind. <clears throat> And once you really get a thorough feeling for that, and it's to be developed very thoroughly, completely,
felt. What happens? Your sense of perspective changes, you get more dispassionate, and you can abide in that quality. So each um, sense of the, you know, what we're looking, what we're cultivating, also brings its own changes to our our wisdom faculty. Our wisdom becomes more spacious, more um, fulfilled, and you begin to sample and taste that. The coolness or the easefulness or the non-reactivity, you sample and taste that. And every time you sample and taste, you're building up, allowing room for those enlightenment faculties to grow in that in that place of fruition. Mm. So it's just every little piece, there's some fruition to it. Yeah. In morality, there's a fruition that can be enjoyed. Uh, self-respect is a fruition that can be enjoyed. Uh, generosity and kindness as a fruition that can be enjoyed. Carefully placing attention as a fruition that can be enjoyed. Just learning to carefully place your attention rather than be slammed into things or skid around. That can be savoured and enjoyed. Feeling one full inhalation can be savoured and enjoyed. So that at least for these times you're getting into free space where your your resources are being amplified. And that's how you, you build it up, steadily. So we're looking at things like, you know, the not running out for one minute, not running out, you know, or for 10 seconds, not running out, or at least not running out into really weird stuff, miserable stuff. Run out a little bit into some decent stuff now and then, but, you know, so you're looking, it's very kind of graduated. It's not one shot and it's all over, but noticing over a lifetime of practice, just curbing, training, fulfilling, enjoying, seeing where your mind doesn't run out anymore to that. And then appreciating that. This is, this is Nibbana as something that's here and now. You look in your mind, you realize you don't have that anymore. And that's that's Nibbanad. It's blown out. And that's to be savored and enjoyed. So all these pieces start to have a feeling of an enrichment. An enrichment and ceasing are really two sides of the same process. As one thing ceases, there's an enrichment. Take care to to balance your practice in both respects. Yeah. to balance out whatever you're kind of letting go of or putting aside by filling up with the fruition of that in your wisdom faculties. So offer this for your reflection. <coughs>
So if you'd like to uh, continue practice and uh, offering this vigil until till midnight, so the sense of group occasion, group support, uh, tuning into that if you uh, are up to it. And uh, then at midnight we'll give the sharing of the blessings of our practice with all beings. Thank mm-hmm. you.